This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You invited me to talk to you as a man, didn't you? Yes. I'm as good as some of them that's been playing around with you. They're all afraid of you. Oh, I know, I've heard them talking. They'd go after you, but they're afraid of you. I wish to heaven I wasn't their boots. What then, Michael? A couple films into our Betty Davis marathon, we were wondering if any of Davis's male co-stars would be able to keep up with her. Leslie Howard, he didn't have a chance. Even Henry Fonda couldn't pull it off. This week, Humphrey Bogart is just one of the men giving it a go in 1939's Dark Victory. Also this week, the top five things we're streaming during quarantine. All that and more. Does it feel good to stand on stage with 500-pound tigers and have everybody envy you? Absolutely. Ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. You and I have been lucky, Josh. We've been able to quarantine with our families lots and lots and lots of quality time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Enough quality time for you to succumb to the gravitational pull of Netflix's Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness. Maybe not my proudest parenting moment allowing the younger daughter to watch that series. Yeah, yeah. Huh. That might have been a, a bad decision. Rethinking that one. Will Tiger King make Josh's top five things we're streaming during quarantine? We will find out soon enough. Also on the show, the third movie in our Betty Davis marathon. It is 1939's Dark Victory. We've seen Davis suffer plenty through the first two films in the marathon of human bondage. She died of tuberculosis. And then she was carted off to a leper colony during a yellow fever epidemic in Jezebel. Things don't really get much better for her this week in Dark Victory. Prognosis negative, Adam. Prognosis negative. Well, we didn't get to this last week because his note came in after we recorded, but wanted to give a little time to it right here. A shout out to Film Spotting Madness Godfather, Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire. This was his brainchild, Film Spotting Madness. And Mike is also happens to be one of those people providing essential services during the pandemic. You've heard us at the top of the last couple of shows thanking such folks. We're sure there are many of you who are in our listenership and turns out, yes, Mike is one of those. He works at an assisted living facility and has recently had to quarantine himself from his family. And that includes setting up camp in a tent in his backyard. Yard. So here's some of that note from Mike. I'm in nowhere near the situation many hospital workers are. I've been living apart as a precaution since I'm not able to social distance. It's the only way I can be sure I don't bring it to my girls who are safe at home. 
But I'm nothing special. It's the nurses that are the heroes right now. I'm doing fine, just being extra safe. If I could be so bold, perhaps you could suggest listeners support the Meals on Wheels COVID-19 Response Fund to help ensure a lifeline to the seniors in our communities. We have done that. Film Spotting was proud to make a donation and just to be made aware of the service at all. And we encourage you to do the same. If you have the means, we will link to that response fund in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. We thank Mike and everyone else providing essential services right now. Of course, the good news for Mike he didn't lose film spotting madness. That was you, Josh. Indeed. I don't think watching the latest Sandler Netflix movie in that tent would cheer him up. What What is it? D- Dougie Doobie or whatever, whatever that thing was. <laughs> Doobie Halloween. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. How dare you? <laughs> Close. <laughs> Well, let's get to our top five this week. We are sharing the top five things we're streaming during quarantine. And we already heard from a listener, Jerry Romano in Seattle, who is going to suggest that maybe we could all be a little bit more productive and studious with our time, Josh. He says, sure, I can name great streaming options, but how about a streaming project that will improve your film history education? Now, that's something for film spotting listeners. Currently, I am reading a book on David Lynch's films, Lynch on Lynch, and watching, after each chapter, the film that Lynch just discussed. Reading my new favorite book on film history, The Movie Musical, by the amazing Janine Basinger, and watching as many musicals as I can that she so brilliantly illuminates. She is the one film writer I have come across who has the proper reverence for Fred Astaire. That might have been a little bit of a shot at us, Josh. I'm not sure. I'm love reading Fred Astaire. Essay. Love Fred Astaire. Not <laughs> yeah, a shot we do at me. Love, we love Astaire. I think we were just a little bit hard on him during a couple of those Stanley Donnan films, right? Uh, paired with Audrey Hepburn. Maybe that's what he's referring to. That's right. I'm reading an essay. Jerry writes on film noir by Paul Schrader in the book, an anthology of American movie critics from the silence to today and watching as many noirs discussed in the essay as I can. So fellow film spotting geeks, pick your own book about a favorite director, actor, genre, and focus your watching around your reading. Josh, were you prior to reading this email so inclined or have you been partaking in entertainment of the more let's say, mindless variety. What's your top five? Yes. Not quite as erudite as what Jerry is suggesting here, though I do want to say I love that book he mentioned, An Anthology of American Movie Critics. That was my number one film book when we did that list, I think, way back in 2015. So Jerry is on the right track here, and I'm jealous of this program he's envisioned because some of this sort of stuff we're doing, I think, with our Davis Marathon for the show. But yeah, when it comes to what we've been streaming you know, at night after all the homework and the work and dinner has been done and the family just kind of collapses out of necessity on the couch together— we're not turning, I'm afraid, to you know the films of David Lynch together. So my list won't reflect this, though I do think it's a really great program that Jerry's come up with. Yeah, that all makes sense. And I will second that book, or at least the Schrader contribution to it, because he's probably referring to Notes on Film Noir, which is essential reading. And we're going to get to one of those, actually, in one of my choices here, in terms of really understanding movies like The Long Goodbye in Chinatown, that Schrader essay is essential. And if I'm getting to some of that material, maybe I've been doing a little bit more solo watching than you, Josh. We'll see how family friendly our picks are. What's your number five? All right, number five. And yeah, this speaks to what we're talking about. These aren't all endorsements, I'm going to say, even though this is a top five list. It's more a record of how I've been spending my time. And that brings us to Tiger King at number five, this documentary series on Netflix, uh, mainly centering on Joe Exotic, the owner of an animal park in Oklahoma. 
He's on trial at the start of this documentary series. Starts right out with him being on trial for planning to murder a rival and an animal rights activist, Carol Baskin. And then the series retraces his story, goes back to the beginning, and introduces us to all sorts of victims and villains along the way. So ostensibly, this is about the big cat industry. Um, That was one of the interesting things to me and kind of pulled us in as a family. But it turns out it also covers drugs. It also covers polygamy, sex cults. I mean, pretty soon here, animals are forgotten. And we spend a lot of time with truly awful people. I mean, abusive people, manipulative people. They're just vile towards others and animals. And it was interesting as more and more people watch this series and I started to talk to others about it and online, everyone that I spoke to, most people I should say, hit a wall after episode four. And that one includes Joe Exotic's internet TV show. There's a a episode of that that has a doll meant to resemble Carol Baskin, which he essentially assaults with a sex toy and then shoots in the head with a real gun. And at that point for me, the series sort of tipped from can't look away to maybe I can. Maybe I should. <laughs> um, and and we were ready to, you know, it was kind of, as I said, as a family, we were like, do we really want to finish this? And then spring break hit. I think we got extra, extra desperate. And there is that fascination factor. So we did end up finishing it. Um, I, I can say, though, you know, there is a lack of empathy, I think, in terms of this as a documentary project for anyone on the screen. Uh, they they found a gold mine of a story here and essentially chased it for the most sensational aspects and forgot that animal angle and really don't see the people as anything but freaks. It is jaw-dropping. I mean, it just keeps hitting other levels. So if you don't need any sort of empathy in your docs, you'll probably be fascinated by this and glad you spent time with it. But I do sort of regret watching it. Um, and yeah, going hmm. back to what I said at the top, you know, uh, B, our eighth grader, when we did take that break and we were talking about starting up again, she she said, are we just going to keep doing this until we're all permanently scarred? So <laughs> that, you know, again, kind of a clarifying parenting moment. And um, yeah, so proceed with caution when it comes yeah. to Tiger, Tiger King. And you said, yes, we are, B, buck up. <laughs> no, start watching. <laughs> I was ready to bail. And and we just, yeah, I, you know, parents don't always make the perfect choices, Adam. So just to clarify, just want to make sure I didn't miss this. Have you finished it or are you going to finish it? Or did you throw in the towel at some point? No, we did. Yeah, it was you kind of, it. I, I, it was that combination of spring break hitting and just kind of feeling committed. And, you know, other people also did say, listen, episode four is the low point. Um, and, and there, you know, it, it doesn't get that bad. <laughs> is that ever an endorsement for a series? It, it won't get that bad again. You should finish it. Well, you yeah, know, nothing idiots. like watching something that makes you feel guilty as hell right after you're done. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. So there you go. My number five. Okay. I have not taken the Tiger King plunge. And at this point, I just don't envision that I will. I think I'm just already tired of the discourse. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it I can see that. started with just write the snarky tweets and the memes. And now we're into the full-blown think regret. pieces full and the essays. Regret. Yeah. And, and people coming around to regret where you are as well. <laughs> and I think I'm just going to give a pass to Tiger King on the complete opposite end of the Netflix dial, you have my number five. And I've broken these down into categories. And I think you'll probably find some resonance with these categories. Lots of people listening will as well in terms of the types of content you're consuming and maybe some of the reasons behind it. So my number five is what I'm calling comfort food. You just want something that doesn't give you that guilty feeling that isn't full of sensationalism and being overly provocative. 
And for me, that's Cheers. Mm. The series Cheers is on Netflix. It's on other platforms as well. And I kept seeing it pop up and it caught my eye. And then what really did it is one night a few weeks ago, Sam, our producer, tweeted, skip intro on this episode of Cheers Netflix. I think not. (laughs) And it just seems so truthful and dead on to me because skip intro is the default probably for most of us, not always. Sometimes I do want to partake in that theme, whether it's the visuals or the song. Most of the time I'm skipping though. And the notion that I would skip Cheers and skip that theme song, just like Sam said, was so preposterous to me. It immediately made me feel nostalgic. Sure. And- One night, I just said to Sarah, let's turn it on. Let's go back and watch it, because it's certainly not the case that I watched every episode of Cheers during its run, and I don't think I ever watched the first episode, though it was September of 82. I would have been seven years old, I think, so it's not like I would remember it anyway, and we've just been periodically returning to Cheers and knocking out a few episodes here during this quarantine. From those opening notes... It was like someone had just draped a warm blanket over me, Josh. And if we're being technical about it, this was more our parents' show than it was our show. We were in grade school or in junior high during its prime, right? I mean, it ran 82 to 93, almost canceled during its first season, 74th out of 77 in the ratings, I think I read on Wikipedia today. But one year during that run, it was number one, and it was top 10 for eight of those 11 seasons, I think. And it was must-see TV. That was a thing back in the day, Thursday nights before Seinfeld. Yeah, I was going to say, was it part of that Thursday night lineup? That's what I thought. Absolutely. Before Seinfeld and Friends and Will and Grace, it was The Cosby Show, and it was Family Ties, and it was Cheers, and it was Night Court, and it was capped off by Hill Street Blues. (laughs) Yeah, Hill Street Blues and L.A. Law and Of course, some other shows swapped in during that period, but we had so many fewer options to watch at that time on television, obviously didn't have movies on demand or streaming at that time. And I watched Cheers all the time with or without my parents. And during this quarantine, we started watching it when we just had put out our Stop Making Sense episode. So this was very clear in my mind, all the things I loved about Stop Making Sense. And we talked about how David Byrne and Jonathan Demme stack that whole concert so that it opens with Byrne alone. And then another band member joins in. And then there's another song and another band member joins in. Right. And this new dynamic is formed with each edition until it's whole. And then there's just this magic alchemy that's happening on stage. And the Cheers pilot opens brilliantly the same exact way. Ted Danson as Sam Malone opening the bar has a little bit with an underage kid who wants a beer. We get that theme song, which yes, I did not skip, of course. And then Diane Shelley Long comes in with this professor that she's been TAing for. She thinks she's running off to marry him and all he's got to do is make a quick stop at his ex-wife's place to get the ring that he's going to give to Diane. And then we get this long scene where that love-hate comedic chemistry between Danson and Long is just immediately clear. Are you Sam? Yes, he's here. Someone named Vicky. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, she knows you're here. I told her you're here. Now, look, I'm sorry I was wrong. He had to step out. Where? Well, um, I think what happened is he, uh, he had, 
He had to go to mime class. <laughs> yes, yes, I'll, I'll take a message. You're welcome. Well? You're a magnificent pagan beast. Thanks. What's the message? <laughs> and as soon as the professor leaves, Coach walks in. A few minutes later, Carla, then Norm. They're introduced and integrated. And the longer Diane waits for this guy to return, the more she just organically becomes part of the group until Sam offers her a job at the bar. There's some really good jokes. The writing for me has absolutely held up so far. But all of the real humor and the pleasure of watching Cheers, as with any great sitcom, it all comes from the characters, right? And they are just all fully formed right there yep. within the first few minutes of that first episode. And as we're all right now trying so hard to stay connected, whether it means doing a show like this or we're getting on Zoom calls with family members and friends, I just got to ask, wouldn't you like to get away, Josh? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and... The only place you can really do that right now is watching Cheers. At least that's how I'm vicariously doing it. I can, I can see those drawings, uh, you know, those the pictures that were part of yeah. the opening credits as you're talking about the song. Um, and the way you describe the structure, that's my memory of almost every episode. You know, that, that was part of the familiar comforting rhythm is mm -hmm. that you knew these people, each of these people that you'd come to really be invested in were going to show up at their appointed time, right? And that's just it. kind of, and kind of goose the story too. Um, and let me ask you this though about Cheers, because you're right. I remember watching it um, as a kid, probably, you know, ducking into the room while my parents were certainly, oh man, did they love Hill Street Blues. They loved Hill Street Blues. We my weren't allowed too. to watch that, right? And, and it was probably past my bedtime, I, I think. But yeah, I would catch snippets of it here and there. And I just thought it looked like the greatest place in the world. Had very little yep. awareness what a bar even was. You know, my my parents weren't big drinkers. And, um, and so it just seemed like, to me, this this kind of restaurant that that people all knew each other and cared about each other. It wasn't mm -hmm. until, you know, the show went on, as you said, for so long, and I got older and continued to watch it, I realized, wow, I wonder how many of these people you could describe as alcoholics. And if they're, you know, like there's sort of a, a very, and I think the show was aware of this, I just wasn't aware of it, like a, a melancholy flip side to this community. Um, mm -hmm. So my curiosity is, having not revisited in decades, did any of that, like how did that sort of strike you in the episodes you've seen? Does it is it aware of that? Is it kind of pushing that away? Or is that something know. kind of I was kind of just imagining it as I became older and grew more aware of bar culture and things like that? I think that melancholy might be there as I get deeper into the series, but I think of it only really coming through in the character of Norm, George yes. Went, who is at the bar every day yes. and is just downing beers the whole time he's there. They make it seem like he's a guy who could just drink five or six within about five or six minutes, and that's a normal time for him. And there is something now maybe that's a little bit off-putting about that, his ability and his desire to want to escape from his life and his job so much that he just comes and sits there. But for right now, Norm is still a really great character and a really funny character yeah. and all the jokes still land. I will also counter Josh and say that in these first few episodes, we get the backstory on Sam, which is that he was a drunk. He's, re he's recovering. Yeah, he's recovered. Mm -hmm. yep. And at this point is someone who is still drinking the water or drinking the coffee, but works at this bar and is serving people. And you still 
I suppose, get a little bit of that melancholy, but in a more thoughtful way, even with Sam. It isn't so much about glorifying that type of oh, no, no, yeah. culture and or consumption. That's what I mean. I, I don't mean to imply yeah. that it was something the, the show was ignorant of or mm-hmm. even that it's something that we should hold against it. I, I think it would be to its credit if the show acknowledged, and yes, I do remember that about Sam's character. So it's there. And definitely Norm would be kind of the focal point of someone who, who yeah, like I said, there's just another side to this, mm-hmm. this sort of um, the culture we're seeing. So yeah, you, you got me wanting to watch some more Cheers. We'll have to see if I can throw that into the rotation. I, I have a couple of picks that could definitely be comfort food picks as well, Adam. One almost literally higher up on my list, but my number four qualifies too, I think, and it's called World's Most Extraordinary Homes. So speaking of shows from our childhood, uh, do you do you remember Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous hosted by Robin Leach at all, Adam? I mean- of course. Okay, good, good. I think maybe a, a more recent version, but still is going to date us even by saying this. MTV's Cribs, you know, you get into the these lavish households of these celebrities. Well, World's Most Extraordinary Homes, it's a variation on that, but less celebrity-focused and more architecture-focused. So one of the hosts is an architect, Piers Taylor, and then the other is a property developer and actress, Caroline Quinton. They're both British, so of course very charming. They've got a great camaraderie together, and they basically travel the world visiting these uniquely designed luxury homes. My favorite parts are when you get to see like the floor plans of these homes and, and how they were constructed. There is some nitty-gritty stuff here. Taylor, as the architect, he'll do some drawings and explain how these homes you know, fit the landscape, how they function, and I kind of geek out on that sort of stuff. Um, they have, I mean, these are really some architectural wonders too. There's an island cabin in Norway. Uh, there's uh, in New Zealand, they built this house at all these angles to kind of to build it around these ancient trees and not disturb these trees. So amazing places. And it also functions as a travelogue. There's a whole episode devoted, a more recent one, I think it is, to Jerusalem, which is a city that, you know, I have all sorts of associations and connotations, but have never, you know, really seen it as a place where people, you know, live in and have constructed their everyday homes uh, to function within this, you know, historic city. So yeah, this is a series, World's Most Extraordinary Homes, another another Netflix one that maybe it's something about being trapped in our own house, um, which thankfully we're very happy with, um, but is, is not one of these houses. And also having canceled trips we had planned to not quite as exotic mm. places, but you know, places we had planned to go that this series has been this soothing replacement for for us. We just kind of chill out to it. So um, I'd recommend it if that sounds good. If any of those things are interesting to you, again, Netflix is on World's Most Extraordinary Homes. There aren't a ton of episodes. Um, I think we started watching the more newest ones, and then we've jumped back to the earlier ones. But it's a good time. So is there like a special Airbnb just for people like you and Josh and Debbie that will only stay in luxury places? (laughs) Well, I don't know if we could afford that, but we would definitely go on the website and, you know, peek at all the rooms. That That's for sure. I can guarantee you that. Gotcha. Okay. My number four is a set of random rewatches. And they're just that. They're films that I had no plans, no larger purpose to revisit. But with some of this extra time, you just end up, for whatever reason, watching and you're glad that you did and my first one is a film that i feel like got overlooked mainly because it came out at that bad time that end of the year kind of portrait of a lady on fire where it was a christmas release so we didn't really talk about it on our show until actually our rap party the 2017 rap party that would have been in 2018 
my emotional moment or maybe my runner up for the emotional moment of the year came from the Aaron Sorkin directed Molly's Game starring Jessica Chastain. And that just came to Netflix, I think, this past month. I just love the crackle of the Aaron Sorkin dialogue. I know it's not for everyone. I dig it. I'm into it almost all the time. Something about hyper-intelligent people engaged in dialogue. And that's it, engaged. It's not just conversation. It's conversation with intent. They're there to convince, to cajole, sometimes to express compassion. There is something about it that I find really compelling. And before we had some of these streaming platforms, Josh, it's the kind of film that had it just popped up on a Saturday or Sunday on TBS or on HBO late at night, I probably would immediately get hooked and I would watch it from whatever point it was at until the end every single time it came on. And now we just live in a different world where you do a similar thing, except you have to be the one to initiate it. So you can go to Netflix and be like, hey, I'm folding clothes now, or I'm going to do some work on the computer, but I want something on the TV to distract me every now and again. Molly's Game is the film for me. It's one of those films for me that I would just throw on and will throw on at least as long as it's on Netflix. The other one is the Alan Pakula masterpiece, All the President's Men. It's Hmm. in the Pantheon, so maybe it's not eligible for this list technically, but this is a little bit of a different type of list. And Holden had it as an optional assignment, suggested viewing for his history class. And I said, you know what? Let's do it. Let's do family movie night with All the President's Men. Haven't watched it probably in 15, 20 years myself, though have seen it multiple times. And it's just a film that is so well-written acted and directed that I don't actually know where to start articulating it. I feel like Josh, it's greatness is baked into every single frame and choice that's made. You've done the Ebert interrupt us a few times, right? Where you Mm -hmm. break down a film with an audience and someone just shouts it out. You stop it. It might be every five seconds. It might be a couple minutes that goes by. I feel like all the president's men would be a candidate for me where Every second, I would just be going, oh, man, (laughs) look at Dustin Hoffman's ingratiating smile here. Look at Robert Redford, the way he closes his eyes when a source says, I really shouldn't be telling you this on the phone. And that that nonverbal way he is imploring the guy to just say it already. The way Pakula shoots the Washington Post office and those meetings with Deep Throat any Jason Robards line reading is Ben Bradley. There's even there's an editor's meeting. I did notice this this time. There's two meetings in the film we see. I think it's two where it's clearly just all the different section editors of the post in a room and they're going through their inventory, how many pages they're going to give to what stories, what's going to get on the front page and the rhythms of it, the overlapping dialogue, the jokes, the personal asides and all the little quips. It's so right and so authentic. It feels like it should be out of a documentary, except there's no fussiness about it. It's not Pakula drawing any attention to the way it's made or the way it's written. It just exists authentically and perfectly on screen. So if you somehow have not seen All the President's Men, now might be a good opportunity for you to do that. It's available for purchase on Amazon Prime and other platforms. But I was grateful that I had an excuse to just kind of randomly revisit that movie. 
Oh, it'd be a great interrupt is picked. And I, I'm just looking up the the history, the lists of films. And Ebert, I don't think, ever did that himself, which which surprises me because it would work so well for that format. And yeah, I'm a huge fan, of course, because of the, the anyone who's worked at a newspaper ever. And I, I was never an investigative journalist by any means. But just being in that culture and seeing how this movie respects the rigors mm-hmm. of the profession and the basics of it and bakes that into the filmmaking itself um, it is something that you're gonna you're gonna absolutely appreciate if you've had that experience at all so all the presidents man that, that would be a great one to revisit my number three so one of my I'll call it a privileged problem during COVID-19 that I have, Adam. It's it's the loss of the NBA. A great season of professional basketball came to a sudden halt. So I've had to fill that need some way, and I did it by pulling out a box set I've had for years, box DVD set that celebrates the Chicago Bulls' six championships in the 1990s. The title is NBA Dynasty Series Chicago Bulls. Uh, real quick, takeaways, couple takeaways, Scottie Pippen totally underrated. I I mean, I know he's considered a legend and one of (laughs) the top 50 basketball players of all time, but but he's even better than that. Uh, And as far as the GOAT discussion, greatest of all time between Jordan and LeBron James, all right, I conceded, I think it was a year or so ago, (laughs) that LeBron has probably taken that title. I'm more than willing to be argued out of that. I'm more than willing to be argued wrong as a Chicagoan. But one thing is for sure, after going through some of these DVDs, man, Jordan is so much more fun to watch. I mean, he just... He spends so much time doing beautiful things high up in the air, way above LeBron's head would have been. So uh, that's been just a blast to watch. Now, you can't, this is kind of a sneaky pick, you can't stream this DVD set. So I'll take this occasion as an excuse to mention that ESPN's 10-part Michael Jordan doc, The Last there Dance, you go. they moved that up. It was going to come out yeah. in June. And this now, Sunday, the 19th. Yep, the release date is April 19th. So obviously... I can't wait for that. Listeners, I can maybe loan you my Bulls box set because it isn't streaming, but otherwise, just look for The Last Dance this weekend on ESPN. I will be watching it. Yeah, I have not seen the set that you are watching, but I cannot wait for Sunday night when the 10-part doc starts. It's been this mythical thing that's been rumored to be in production or potentially in production for some time. Knew it was coming out, and ESPN wisely bumping that up. I think it's something that a lot of people, just like us, are going to be watching. My number three, these fall under the category of blind spots, and... In this case, there is a specific hook to it, Josh, though it wasn't by design. I'll explain. It's my unofficial slash official Bruce Surtees marathon. So one day I realize I'm kind of running out of options in terms of things that are really hooking me on Netflix. And I know that there are some things I should get to real cinematic blind spots that have been mentioned on the show over the years that I feel regret about, but they just seem heavy. I'm not ready for it yet. I need stuff that's under two hours. I can knock it out and I need it to be reasonably entertaining, but I do still want to feel like I'm getting some homework done. I do still want to feel like I've crossed something off my list that I felt for some time that I needed to get to. So I went over to Amazon prime and one of the things that popped up happened to be dirty, Harry, the first dirty, Harry movie with Clint Eastwood, Don Siegel directed and Right away, I realized how stylishly shot it was. And so after I watched it, I looked up who the DP was, and I see that it's Bruce Surtees. And I think, yeah, I know that name. I can't really tell you what else he's done. I don't know much about his history or his legacy at all, but that is a name I've heard. And 
oh, I'll just file that away. Okay, so what's next? A couple days later, I go back to Prime. One of the films that pops up, Lenny, the Bob Fosse directed Mm -hmm. film about Lenny Bruce. And that really is one for me I've always been ashamed because I adore, as you know, all that jazz, Fosse's film. I like Cabaret quite a bit as well. And in the TV series Fosse Verdon, some of the making of Lenny pops up in that TV series. It, of course, pops up in all that jazz as well. A lot of cutting to scenes of the Fosse alter ego Joe Gideon cutting the movie that would become Lenny. So it's kind of just been a joke for me that I've never watched this film. I decide I'm going to sit and watch Lenny and I'm watching the credits and whose name pops up as responsible for the black and white cinematography. It's Bruce Surtees. So then I decide, okay, well, this is just too convenient, too much of a coincidence. We're going to make this happen. And I'll give you just a little bit of background on him. Is he a name that's familiar to you at all, Josh? Yeah, familiar with the name. I don't think I would have been able to identify any of his movies, though. Right. So he got his start as a camera operator working with Don Siegel, and especially on Siegel and Clint Eastwood films in the late 1960s. So movies like Two Mules for Sister Sarah and Coogan's Bluff. And then his first role as a cinematographer, as the director of photography, was 1971. It was The Beguiled. So that's Siegel directing Eastwood. And then Play Misty for Me followed that, where he was working with Eastwood again, but this time Eastwood as director. That was his debut. He died in 2012. And if you look at his IMDb, the early 2000s and the 90s were not good to Surtees. Out of maybe 20 titles, there's not one that really stands out as essential viewing. And even at the end of the 80s, the decade closed for Surtees with Rat Boy, Back to the Beach, and license to drive. And the 80s for him was otherwise filled with a lot of Eastwood stuff prior to that. So movies like Firefox and Tightrope and Sudden Impact, even Honky Tonk Man. His heyday really was the 1970s, which brought me to Night Moves. This is an Arthur Penn, sure. really bleak neo-noir starring Gene Hackman as a former football player turned disillusioned private eye. What other type of private eye is there in the 70s? And it's all set within the movie business. So it's reflexive, too, in the mode of Altman's The Long Goodbye. And then the one I most recently watched was another Eastwood blind spot, which is Pale Rider. And I'm just a sucker for Eastwood Westerns, where he's almost a mythical figure of violent redemption that seems to be the case in almost all of his Westerns. It's definitely true of Pale Rider. A lot of biblical overtones in it, including where the title comes from and his eyes in it, Josh. There's always this sense and a character comments on it. Richard Dicer, who plays the main bad guy in the film, says to someone else that it's always like he's seeing through you with those eyes. And truly, it's like he just always knows how this is going to play out. And you see that in Eastwood's face. So Surtees knows how to frame those great mountain landscapes, but man, does he really know how to shoot Eastwood's face and those eyes in close up. And all four of the films I've mentioned are worth seeing and worth examining the politics of Dirty Harry that have been much debated over the years, even Pale Rider. There's this anti-corporate pro-union reading you could absolutely apply to that movie and especially pro-environment that doesn't necessarily jive with what people think of when they think about Clint Eastwood. Of course, the sexual politics and the legacy of Lenny Bruce is something to reckon with. And you can do that. All four of those movies are available for purchase on Amazon Prime and other platforms. Well, I think there may have been a slight against License to Drive somewhere in there, which I don't know if I can let stand, Adam. I mean, come on. Well, I mean, I enjoyed it when I was 
12 as well, Josh. I'm glad to hear that you did. I will say real quick in terms of what's next for this marathon, because I am going to continue it. There are two more Eastwood Siegel Surtees films to watch, Escape from Alcatraz and the aforementioned Beguiled. I also do want to see the aforementioned play Misty for me. There's another Siegel-directed film with John Wayne, another Western, The Shootist, that I've always meant to see. And I know you've seen this one because you've logged it on Letterboxd. Surtees shot Sam Fuller's White Dog. Uh, Which sounds fascinating, but unfortunately does not seem to be available anywhere. So I may not get to that one. But I think those other three or four movies will probably round out this marathon for me. Yeah, that's probably White Dog is probably where his name rung a bell for me. But also, I think The Beguiled, the 71 version, which I watched in preparation for the Sofia Coppola remake. And yeah, there, you know, I remember a lot of superimposed imagery that he and Eastwood employed, which was really effective in The Beguiled, Mm -hmm. because that's a movie that has some some pastoral elements to it and then kind of curdles into this this southern gothic nightmare so so there's definitely uh, a touch yeah. there that stands out in terms of the cinematography well you see it in pale rider too for sure all right my number two is my literal comfort food pick it's nailed it uh on netflix a reality food show but really a reality baking comedy is a better way to describe this i think features host and stand-up comedian nicole Byer and renowned pastry chef jacques torres and then basically they bring in three contestants who all think they're pretty decent bakers um but they give them these elaborate challenges that will pretty much have them fail spectacularly in some way. The reveals of these finished products are just so fun. I mean, one example, there's there's usually a theme. So in one of these, there's a Moby Dick themed cake, but it really, it just ends up looking more like the creature from Alien. And seeing Bayer and Torres give their reactions to, to these monstrosities that are revealed. You know, both of them, what's great about it is both of them have the instinct to say something nice. So it's not just that they're coming up with like a witty insult, but it's like, how can I couch this in, in a genial manner, and it's it's just hysterical. So even though maybe this overall concept sounds cruel, I think the key is that no one involved takes themselves seriously at all. So the laughter here is very communal. The contestants are, you know, kind of in this together. It's very good natured. Probably the butt of the joke ultimately is the very idea of perfection, um, that you're going to be able to pull something like this off. So there's, it's a show of tremendous grace in that way. Uh, it's a ton of fun. It's short and sweet. You can knock one out quickly um, for just, you know, a chaser to a rough day, or you can pile a bunch <laughs> together to make it a night. Um, but we have so much fun with Nailed It on Netflix. Okay. Nailed It, not on my radar at all. But my number two pick kind of fits nicely with it, I think, Josh, in terms of feeling like something after a hard day or maybe when you are finally just ready to unwind and have a good time, you want to get lost in this series a little bit. And so I've been doing some TV show binging and catching up. And the series is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm. I don't know if I can call it a true blind spot, because if I really had the mental fortitude, I would use this time to watch seasons two through, what is it, five of The Wire? I think it finished around season five. I've only seen season one. I've never watched Breaking Bad. I've never watched Mad Men. There are whole seasons of The Sopranos I missed, and I should revisit that whole series. And I also have never watched any of Game of Thrones. So there is a lot of true TV homework I could be doing. This, for me, is pure fun. And I had generally heard that it was pretty good. It's been on for seven seasons or so. It had always just kind of been there. And like Cheers, it's a Thursday night, 
NBC show, but I simply don't watch TV at all during the week. And even when I do get to TV, it's usually a Sunday night HBO series that I'm going to settle in for. There just isn't that time during the week. And there, as you know, Josh, are always movies for this show that you can catch up with or be putting in some time on and those take precedent. What happened was, I have to admit, my social media time waster, the thing when you're just about ready to go to bed and you're not ready to clock out just yet, and so you start picking up the phone for 10 minutes. Oh, never do that, Adam. at the grocery never, store. Never yeah, do never. that before well, bed. <laughs> well, I do it all the time, and it's probably why I don't sleep well. But besides scrolling through Twitter, it's scrolling Facebook watch. And my feed, how do I characterize it? It's pretty much a constant stream of bass guitar lessons, guitar god performances, and stand-up comedy bits. There's maybe, I'm embarrassed to admit, some undercover boss reveals spread in there as well. And a few weeks ago, all of these Brooklyn Nine-Nine videos just started popping up for some reasons. Videos titled things like Holt's Best Insults or Best Opening Scene, Best Worst Date, Jake and Boyle, Besties. And of course, once you start watching them and you realize you like them and you're completing the video, well, then it's just going to serve you more and more. So I had been consuming so much of Brooklyn Nine-Nine just through one to two minute Facebook watch clips. And the crazy part was that I realized I was becoming invested in the characters and the relationships and the rituals, all just from consuming these extracted scenes that were completely devoid of context. And I went to Sarah. I said, this is our TV show. We got to watch it. Let's take the plunge. Mentioned it to Sophie as well. She was all in. It's a series she felt like she needed to watch. Of course, she can't watch it with us because she can't watch it our pace. So she's in the middle of season three. We're just about to the middle of season two. Sometimes she she actually comes in and watches an episode or two with us. But Josh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine for me is just legit laugh out loud stuff every episode. I love every character, every performance, Stephanie Beatriz, Jolo Truglio, Terry Crews, Chelsea Peretti. And I don't know that I'm allowed to say this. You can be the judge, the Gen X judge here. Am I allowed to stand a relationship? Uh, what? What are you talking about? Can I stand a relationship? Because I do. Okay. <laughs> you can play ignorant. You know what I'm talking about. And Jake and Amy, Andy Samberg is this completely fly by the seat of his pants, all on instinct. Don't take anything seriously, detective. And Melissa Fumero as Santiago, who's this ambitious, just by the book overachiever. There's a real Sam and Diane spark to them, Josh. And I am all in on that couple. But maybe even more than that couple. I appreciate Andre Brower as Captain Holt and his dynamic with Andy Samberg. I looked this up today, just sure I was going to find that everything was right with the world, that Brower had won at least one, maybe two Emmys for his work as Captain Holt on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Turns out he has been nominated three times. There's that at least, but he has never won. And if I cared about the Emmys at all, I'd say they should burn it all down and start again just because of that oversight. I think I do stand the whole Peralta relationship even more. Oh, come on, really? I'm a few minutes late, so you're going to call me out in front of everyone? Good idea. Everyone, gather around so I can call out Peralta in front of you. Okay, fine. I was three minutes late. I'm sorry for doing one thing wrong. Oh, it's more than one thing. Let's start with the Kristoff murder. It was an amazing solve. I got him to confess in 20 minutes. You also mislabeled the evidence, so that confession is worthless if the sergeant hadn't caught your mistake. Here are three cases with sloppy paperwork. Here are two pictures. 
One is your locker. The other is a garbage dump in the Philippines. Can you tell which is which? That one's the dump. They're both your locker. God, I should have guessed that. He's good. You stand as much as you want to, okay? Thank I give, you. I give you that permission. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I have had so many people press me to watch this series. And I think, you know, one of the appealing things, even though I've not done it yet, but one of the appealing things, in addition to all the recommendations for me, is that this is in sort of the Michael Schur universe as, as producer. So the same person who's involved in The Office, who's involved the in Parks and Rec. Recreation, right. who's involved in The Good Place. So you can kind of see some of the things you're describing, I think, that may sound resonant in these other shows. But I think people who have watched any of those other shows know also how distinct they are in, yeah. in the communities that they're capturing. So, so yeah, this is, this is one more recommendation I'm going to take to heart when it comes to Brooklyn Nine-Nine for sure. Awesome. It's on Hulu. Excellent. All right. My number one is, you know, the best thing I've been watching lately, although maybe little spoiler here for our Patreon bonus show we're doing for film spotting family members, Adam, on devs, uh, which should be out next week. I think in competition with how good that show has been for me so far is Curb Your Enthusiasm, the return um, of Curb Your Enthusiasm. This will be a series that I will actually be able to complete because I was hooked from the very beginning on this pseudo fictional version of the Hollywood life of Seinfeld co-creator Larry David. I'm going to wrap, you know, since you're throwing 14 picks each, into each pick, um, I'm going to wrap Seinfeld in as well to this one ahead of my number one here because we've been watching my old Seinfeld DVDs. I've got, you know, the, the old man that I have, I have the physical DVDs of every season of Seinfeld. <laughs> and so we pulled those out as well. And we're watching them with the kids. What a relief that they love them, especially Julia Louis-Dreyfus's Elaine. She's she's just, you know, hitting it for them. And they've also picked up on something that I think they've picked up on this quicker than I was when I was watching Seinfeld in high school. How horrible these four people really are at the center <laughs> of the show. I mean, yeah. selfish, unempathetic, just vapid. Um, and, you know, that that's certainly something that that I do remember, but it is in stark relief watching these episodes again. That said. Curb Your Enthusiasm is Seinfeld undiluted. I mean, this is Larry David, uh, who cares nothing for anyone else. His own social proclivities are all that matters to this guy. Here's a case in point from this recent season, season 10. He wants to he wants to get out of a social lunch with somebody he doesn't like, he finds annoying. So he comes upon the idea, I'm going to show up at the lunch, uh, and this is you know somewhere in Beverly Hills, wearing a MAGA hat. And he just knows that that red hat is going gonna, is gonna to just tick this guy off, and he'll immediately call off the lunch. And sure enough, that's what happens. So this is so successful for Larry David that he he goes on to wear it in succeeding days, basically so that he can like get a seat at the sushi counter with no one next to him. So he's just <laughs> using this as a social repellent. This is the kind of guy we're talking about. And and what I've come to realize now that I'm older and, and watching Seinfeld again and, and seeing Curb after a bit of a break is that they're kind of confessional shows for me because if I gave in to my every natural antisocial impulse... I'd be a variation on these people. And so maybe it's it's not only very funny, but a, a bit of a personal cautionary tale for yeah. me to watch something like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, those episodes are on HBO. I, I'm not sure. I think we're a little behind on that. They might be all available at this point. We're working our way through them. Um, but Seinfeld, of course, I'm not sure where that's streaming. Like I said, I'm I'm doing the DVD thing with those. I wondered if you would be self-aware enough 
to call yourself out to know that that instinct lives within you. Oh, yeah. You oh, don't totally. act on it, but it's in you. <laughs> oh, it's there. It's lurking, Adam. <laughs> Always lurking. All right. My number one is an appropriate one to close out this list, especially following all of your picks. You talked so much about how many shows and different movies you've been watching with your family. So I think a lot of us have been fitting in some extra family time around media. And for us, it has been a Studio Ghibli marathon, or more accurately, really a Hayao Miyazaki marathon. And this is a little bit of a cheat. Yeah, I'm sure you do. You probably did it already with your kids, right? Years ago? Yeah, well, I, I think it was only last year where we uh, managed to see the last one, which was, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on this? It was his first. Um, so yeah, it took us a while to see them all. I'm going to look that up. So it's the cheat only because like your Bulls pick, you can't actually stream these. And that's really unfortunate. So instead of the number one thing I'm streaming during quarantine, it's the number one thing I'm watching during quarantine. And I suppose I'm giving a shout out to physical media because you really can only watch these on DVD. And I said it really is a Miyazaki marathon because that's how Sophie presented it to me and the family is wanting it to be a Ghibli marathon. But I knew there was no way... <laughs> We were really going to dive into the work of Isao Takahata because yeah. I'm not prepared right now to traumatize my children, A, or B, cry in front of them, ugly cry in front of them the way I would if we watched that film. It could get now, rough. you won't, yeah, you won't appreciate this. And you hinted at this on our last show, I think, or a recent show, that you, of course, I'm sure, approached your family, Miyazaki Marathon, with a real set structure. And you thought it through and it had to follow a certain trajectory. Is that right? Um, not that one, but but I'll get to one where I did take that approach. No, okay. the Miyazaki has been a little more haphazard. And yeah. and yeah, and I'll just throw in real quick. We did finish up with his first one, Lupin the Third, Castle of Cagliostro. So we were kind of all over the place. What are what have you guys been doing? Yeah, that's what we're doing. And that's partly out of practicality. We're going with what's available. And I have ordered now the Miyazaki box set from eBay. So hopefully. Nice. That will help with this right now. We've had to just go with what I have available on DVD and it's really whatever Sophie decides next that she's most interested in seeing. And I'll say this came about because all my kids are kind of anime nerds. They're really into this video game series called Danganronpa. I don't know if you've heard about, but that's all they do almost. So oh, Adam, Adam, I stand for Danganronpa. <laughs> Yes, I can tell you do by the way you pronounced it. <laughs> stand? Do I stand Dagunrampa? Do you stand? I Josh, stand Dagunrampa. Josh, it has to be natural. It has to be natural. It can't be forced. Okay. If you want to yes. be oh, the cool kids. You've shown us that. <laughs> I know I have. So every Sunday night for the past three Sundays, we've watched a different Miyazaki film. Sarah participated in Spirited Away and then said, you know what? I think I'm good. <laughs> I think I'm going to go have some mom time was it, and you, you dorks can do this. Was it a bit of a lighthouse experience for her? <laughs> exactly. So spirited away, followed up by my neighbor Totoro, followed by Princess Mononoke. And I think we're going to do Ponyo next. And just looking at the last three we've watched, they're all similar, of course, and they're so different. I won't really get into dissecting any of them, but... Totoro is the most straightforward, right? And tender. And the antagonist of that film was really just whatever sickness the girl's mother is suffering from that's keeping this family 
from being with each other. And then mm-hmm. you go to Princess Mononoke, right, which is this huge, sprawling, action-adventure eco-fable with battles and all these different factions that are warring against each other and all this maneuvering that's taking place. And I will say, I really like Mononoke. I've liked all the films so far, seen all the films before, and haven't been surprised by my reaction to them. I do feel like Mononoke might get a little too complicated for its own good with the spirit of the forest and what he turns into and the brown sludge and all that stuff at the end. No, Adam, Adam, it's perfect. No, especially the first half, especially the first half of Mononoke, Josh, I will give you is perfect. And then you've got Spirited Away, which is something a little bit in between where it also follows a human girl and it's confined to this amusement park setting, but with this complex web of characters it feels sprawling in its own right and every single scene of spirited away offers something new and fantastically weird i had forgotten how truly crazy that film is it's really like a child's imagination it's like just within the moment organically miyazaki makes some association and then decides to have that manifest on screen that weird thing or that idea just suddenly appears. And I think that really is the joy of that film. And every kid, as you would expect, has a different favorite. Quinn, who's a, maybe a little bit more aggressive and likes the action, loved Mononoke, clear number one for him. Sure. Meanwhile, Connor, the kid who judges all the films on how cute the characters are, <laughs> loves Totoro, can't yes. get enough of my neighbor Totoro. And I think as I look back, hopefully sometime in the near future, we're all looking back on this crazy time period. And maybe the only positive I'm going to take away from it was being able to have this experience of watching four to 10 films with my kids yeah. every Sunday night, because even one movie night per week prior to this was really difficult to pull off. And sure. someday soon it will be difficult to pull off again, but we've had this opportunity. I'm going to take advantage of it. And I'm going to get to not only revisit these films, but I'm going to get to knock out some blind spots as well. I have three big ones with Miyazaki. There are a couple other ones, including Lupin that you mentioned, but the three big ones are Porco Rosso, Kiki's Delivery Service, and Howl's Moving Castle. Haven't seen those, so I'm excited that I'll finally get to do that as well. Well, the thing that's beautiful about these films, too, is think about the age ranges that you're spanning there with your own kids right? and including yourselves. And, and everyone is appreciating the experience. That's the beauty of, of Miyazaki. Yeah, maybe perfect is too strong for Mononoke. I'm I'm fairly certain perfect applies to Totoro, though. I have I've actually never done. I could. I've seen all of Miyazaki's films, so I could do the ranking on Letterboxd, and um, maybe I should get to that. My instinct is Totoro might be at the top, though. I think that's that's my favorite. But this is this is all good stuff. So yeah, we've kind of randomly done a marathon over the years, and like I said, finished up last week. The marathon we're in as a family right now is uh, you know something we started way before all the craziness, but a Wes Anderson marathon for B, the eighth grader, because we were at that point looking forward to the French Dispatch, um, still looking forward to it. We'll we'll see what happens with its release. Um, but she had only seen Wes Anderson's stop motion films. So we thought, okay, she, she's ready. Our older daughter, we had showed about this age, all of his films. So let's do that marathon. And I actually put up on, uh, on Letterboxd, a, this is what I titled it, a suggested order of a Wes Anderson marathon for an eighth grader who has already seen his animated films and is looking forward to the French Dispatch. So, Very specific. Uh, yes, you asked if I had a method <laughs> and a, a structure. Um, <laughs> maybe not so much for Miyazaki. For this one, yes, we are quite yeah. purposeful. Well, ne- that, that next- makes sense with 
Anderson's ordered world. That's what it? I figured. Yeah, exactly. So we're almost done with that. Next up is Darjeeling Limited. Then we're going to finish it off with Grand Budapest. And I would not be surprised if we do go back to Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox just just for some bonus fun there. Yeah. So well, I think I'm going to follow your cue. Because I know that Holden and Sophie are ready for Wes Anderson, and I want to share Wes Anderson with them. So we'll see if I follow your order or not. Fantastic. Those are our top five things we're streaming during quarantine. Josh, do you have any other quick honorable mentions you want to throw out there? I I think that's, you know, devs I've been watching, Mm -hmm. uh, as I mentioned. I think that's pretty much everything I've, I've been watching. So, yeah, I covered it. Okay. Three quick ones for me. As I do have... An oldest son, Holden, who is obsessed with alternative histories. We have been watching, though we're behind on, The Plot Against America, the Philip Roth adaptation by David Simon that's on HBO. Another show that's my kind of just go-to TV series to turn on on Netflix or Hulu and have it on in the background, but I have been enjoying, is Community. I didn't watch Community when it was on, save for a few episodes. I'm enjoying that. And another kind of random, not a random rewatch, but a random watch, One Night. I saw Mississippi Grind, which goes back to Molly's game a little bit. I'm not a poker player at all, but I am really fascinated by poker and people who play it well. And I like gambling movies. And this is the Anna Bowden, Ryan Fleck movie that came out a few years ago with Ryan Reynolds and Ben Mendelsohn. And not surprising, they're both good in it. Ben Mendelsohn, very good in it. So if you've seen some of the other Bowden and Fleck movies and like them, but didn't watch Mississippi Grind for some reason, like me, an A24 film that came out a few years ago and just didn't make it onto the show schedule. And I finally had a chance to see it and would recommend that. We would love to hear your picks. What are you watching during quarantine? Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, Film Spotting Madness is over, and that means it's time to return to madness of a different kind. We're going to play Massacre Theater when we come back. Plus, Betty Davis takes on more punishment in the third film in our Davis marathon, Dark Victory. Stay with us. I will never ask for more than you can give. Yet when you say be gay today and live, my heart answers cautiously, today will soon be gone. Why rush to meet our destiny? Why must we hurry on? Oh, give me time for tenderness, one little love from each big day. Oh, give me time to stop and bless the golden sunset of a summer day. Let my heart be still and listen to one song of love. I have great respect for your profession. This situation isn't yours to control, Will. You trying to impress me, Finch? You had the wrong guy. Ah! It took you ten minutes to beat Kate Connell to death. No evidence that I killed Kay. You only know it because I told you. Are you doing okay? I mean, you haven't been sleeping much, Detective Dormer. That's from the trailer for 2002's Insomnia, Christopher Nolan's follow-up to his breakout film, Memento. Last week, as part of our Nolan Oeuvre review, we did take another look at Memento, and it held up, held up very well. For both of us, Josh. Yeah, definitely. That was that was a lot of fun to revisit. Our overview is going to continue with insomnia. And maybe it's fitting that we're following up Nolan's 
best loved film, you could say, Memento, um, with what's perhaps his least loved, Insomnia. I think it's a it's a real exception in Nolan's filmography, considering it's a remake of a 1997 Norwegian film. I don't remember it all that well, Adam, but I do know that I saw the original, and I know in my review of Insomnia at the time, referred to it as far superior to Insomnia. So hmm. so we'll see what I make of, uh, of Nolan's film this time around. Yeah, and I understand where Sam is going. I think suggesting in our notes that Memento might be Nolan's best love film. Maybe that's just coming off of our enthusiasm and passion for it last week. Probably The Dark Knight, his most loved. It's probably his most popular. I mean, just by nature of its its genre, right? But yeah. you've got Memento number one, and it's after reviewing, it's sitting there still. So, so yeah, definitely a lot of big fans of Memento. Along with that review of Insomnia, we will have a review of something else, at least one something else. There's a few different options we've been kicking around. There is a new movie coming out at home on demand, Justin Kurtzel's The True History of the Kelly Gang. It stars George Mackay, Russell Crowe, and Nicholas Holt. That does come out on VOD next weekend, Friday, April 24th. St. Francis is a feature debut that's been getting some good reviews. It's currently available to rent on demand. And Blow the Man Down, which is another feature debut and another possible Brick nominee from directors Danielle Crudy and and Bridget Savage Cole. That one is on Amazon Prime. And I think you've already seen it, Josh. And we might just get to some kind of brick roundup next week. Take a look at some newer films that are from newer directors. Yeah, that sounds good. And in case we do heading in the direction of Blow the Man Down, I won't say so much, except I'm, I'm definitely positive on it. And definitely it would fit as, as a brick nominee. So we'll see what direction we end up going there. In a couple of weeks, along with a summer 84 throwdown edition of the 8 from 84 series, we've got Ghostbusters v. Gremlins. Yes. We are going to be sharing our top five movie-going experiences. The current film spotting poll question has us looking ahead to that top five. We asked you simply, what is your favorite kind of movie-going experience? And the early voting does suggest, Josh, that most of our audience is as antisocial as we apparently are. Oh, really? Well, I kind of feel good about that because then they can't give us a lot of crap for right. for choosing, what was it, our ideal situation? Art house on a weekday afternoon. Alone, right? <laughs> Alone, yeah. So <laughs> Alone being the keyword. But you know, there is still something, it sounds bizarre, but though maybe listeners will know what I'm talking about if they voted that way. There's still something communal about that experience, you know, of, of having maybe just one or two or three other people could be in there, just not sitting too close, but but we're out enjoying the movie. In my Larry David mind, <laughs> that's communal, right? Yeah, absolutely. We'll go with that, Josh, and stay tuned, I suppose, to see what exactly we decide to dive into next week. We do often have movie passes to give away here on the show. We're usually pushing you to our events page, obviously with theaters currently closed. We don't have that, but we do have some digital passes to give away to a movie that came out last year the rhythm section it's out now on digital it's a film from the producers of james bond it's a spy thriller starring blake lively and jude law and the film is loaded with behind the scenes bonus content and tons of deleted scenes that content does vary by account but you can buy the rhythm section today on digital and watch it at home tonight it's rated r comes from paramount josh and yeah, we're talking about things you can stream or watch at home right now. How about watching something that you don't have to pay for? We will give you that movie, The Rhythm Section, for free. I think we have five codes to give away for that. All you got to do 
is email us feedback at filmspotting.net with the rhythm section in your subject line, and we'll pick five winners at random. Good deal. We want to give a quick note here for our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. They are still chugging along as we are recording remotely. And as you probably know, Next Picture Show always pairs a recent release with a classic. Hosted by Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. And this week, it's part two of their homesickness pairing. So that is the new film, Swallow. It's the feature debut of Carlo Mirabella Davis. And of course, they previously looked at Todd Haynes' Safe as the pairing there from 1995. So Safe and Swallow, the subject films of the next picture show. You can find new episodes every Tuesday at midnight, wherever you get your podcasts and get more info at nextpictureshow.net. Over on our Patreon page, we just couldn't let madness completely go. One final Matchup. We took the winner of Madness Proper, Bong Joon Ho's Parasite, according to our listeners, the best film of the 2010s, and put it up against the winner of the Film Spotting Invitation Tournament, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So, two of the best films of 2019, arguably the two best films of 2019, making their claim as the best films of the 2010s. And we posted that poll on our Patreon page, but it is open to everyone. You don't have to be a family member to partake in the tomfoolery. The voting will close on Monday, April 20th at 10 a.m. The voting so far is playing out as you might expect, Josh. Parasite is winning. It seems that Portrait's Run has come to an end, but really excited that it won the fit and well-deserved, of course. Yeah, why, why did you have to proceed? Go ahead and set up my beloved portrait for a drubbing by Parasite. I know. I mean, and, and this is, you know, this, this to show you how close this is for me to have to choose Portrait of a Lady on Fire, my number two film of the year, and Parasite, my number three. So, right. so that's what I'm trying to decide between here, Adam. Well, we really just wanted to torture you, and we yeah, succeeded. Sure. But actually, a listener suggested it, though I think Sam and I were already... <laughs> rolling the idea around in our minds. We felt like it was something we just had to do. And I think part of it was, at least for me, I wanted to see how far that portrait of a lady on fire run could go. Because when we set up Film Spotting Madness, the big tournament, we didn't include it and we thought about it, but it made no sense at all because the only people back at that time who had seen it were film critics. It right. just had not come out yet. It wasn't widely available. And then as we're starting the fit, Portrait is available on Hulu. Suddenly it's open to the masses. A lot more people are getting a chance to see it. And I guess I was curious whether or not the love for it was so strong that as now more people have seen it, could it actually overtake Parasite and win in a head-to-head -head battle. And I think we know the answer, but we still encourage you to vote. Again, that voting will end on Monday the 20th at 10 a.m. Just go to patreon.com slash filmspotting. Also on the 20th, so Monday, that's when the next Patreon bonus episode will be posted. So again, one of the things we're offering to Film Spotting family members on Patreon are monthly episodes. The topics vary. They range. This time, we are going to take a look at Alex Garland's eight-episode limited series on FX, Dev. So Garland, a familiar name to Film Spotting listeners, the director of Ex Machina, also Annihilation. And Devs, I think, could be described as another speculative sci-fi story with philosophical 
implications. I, I'm practicing for this conversation, Adam. My, yeah. my face of awe as I as I stare at a beautifully glowing screen and something metaphysically amazing that I don't quite understand is happening. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And as if I wasn't nervous enough for this discussion, because usually we're talking about a movie that requires about two hours of my attention and it's an isolated experience and I'm often cramming it in the night before we're going to talk about it. So it's at least fresh in my mind. I've been watching these episodes now over multiple weeks, and I'm really nervous that you're going to tell me, Josh, that you've been approaching this just like you would any other movie going experience for film spotting. And you have been meticulously taking notes and have some really well thought out thesis and just nuggets of insight to drop on us. No, that's what Sam's going to bring. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I, I, think, Thank I think Sam has cracked the code. <laughs> <laughs> Expect no explanations of whatever is going on in right. devs from me, which is not a slight on the film, but I'm not going to take that angle. <laughs> no pressure there for Sam whatsoever. Again, that bonus show will drop on Monday the 20th and available to our family members on Patreon. Wanted to highlight a couple of those family members real quick, Josh. We got this from Barb near New Haven, Connecticut. Happy Easter morning. The letter started this past Sunday, such as it is during this strange time of COVID. Love your podcast. and proud to be a family member and sport my film spotting t-shirt on Fridays. I'm so looking forward to your discussion on devs. I've just finished episode seven. There's a lot to unpack and ponder before the final episode Thursday. So we're taping this just about 24 hours away from that finale. I'm glad it is not available today on Hulu or on my dev simulation screen inside my gold vacuum cube here at my house. <laughs> <laughs> it will give me something to look forward to this week. Stay well. Thank you for that, Barb. I love that that Barb has the commitment to wear her film spotting T-shirt on show release day, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's just great. <laughs> we got another note here from Trip Burton. Well, since I've been a listener since the original Sin City episode of Cinecast, figured I should join up and become a contributing family member. Thanks for the literally thousands of hours of enjoyment and keep up the good work. It's been a while since I've been to a meetup, but hopefully I will see you at the first post-quarantine film spotting event. Oh, man. And doesn't that sound Can't wait, good right, right now? Yeah. Yes, it does indeed. Thank you, Trip, for that. Again, patreon.com slash film spotting is where you can sign up. We don't know yet what we're going to offer for that May bonus episode, but we're going to give our family members three options and they get to decide. They were the ones who chose devs. And at least for us, they made a good choice. I know Sam has struggled a little bit more with the series, at least early on. And we will hash that all out in our conversation about the series. Maybe get some listener input as well. I know there are some really smart film spotting folks out there who can explain it all to us, Josh. Oh, good. That sounds like that's what we need. All right. It's time for, you remember, you remember what this is, Adam? Massacre Theater, what? the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. Margaret just doesn't miss performances. If she can walk, crawl, or roll, she plays. The show must go on. No, dear. Margo must go on. It is time for Massacre Theater. The good part is we can't forget how to do something we didn't know how to do before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's really no pressure to, to catch up to the excellence, the no. excellent bar we set. I think it will become fairly clear to our listeners what the tie-in to this week's show is. And I think all we'll say is that we took out the names. For the most part, at least the two names of the characters in the scene in order to maybe make it a little bit more difficult. But otherwise, we're going to dive in. Josh, you started off. Are you ready? Uh, let's give it a go. 
Okay, and action. That man sweeping up over there. Does he work for me? I mean, have you seen him before? His name's Nick, something like that. Why is he looking at me? I don't know. Fire him. And make sure they use damp brooms from now on. Respiratory diseases are expensive, and I don't want a bunch of damn lawsuits. Okay, but can we at least proceed with the instrument panel we discussed? The tool shop's ready to go. No, I want to see the blueprints again. The deadline is now completely unrealistic. At this rate, the war is going to be over by the time she's done. Now I need you to help consult on vital decisions, and you're off dealing with movies. You got a thousand damn workers waiting for you to make a decision here. take it easy, all right? I understand you're under a lot of pressure, but it's going to do me no good if you crack up on me like that, all right? Look, take a couple hours off, all right? Relax a little bit. Okay. See your wife. Okay. Show me all the blueprints. All right. Show me all the blueprints. Show me all the blueprints. I'm serious now. Show me all the blueprints. And? And? Scene. (laughs) So let me get this straight. You want to see all the blueprints? Every single one. (laughs) The beautiful thing about um, having uh, to do this show over (laughs) remotely where there's sometimes a little lag at them and and you break up a little bit. I I don't think it really affects our performance. Funny. Funny how that works. (laughs) We're really dialed in with each other and not in our own heads at all, are we? (laughs) If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, April 27th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks if we get those damn blueprints. I'm 23 years old, an only child. I weigh 110 pounds strict. I've had measles, mumps, and whooping cough all at the proper ages. I believe I have no congenital weaknesses. Shall I go on? Yes, please. My father drank himself to death. My mother lives in Paris. That was Betty Davis sharing her medical history with George Brent in 1939's Dark Victory. It is the third film in our Davis marathon. It follows 1934's Of Human Bondage and William Wyler's Jezebel from 1938. In Dark Victory, Davis plays an heiress in the Davis mold. She's willful, she's wild, fast-living, hard-drinking, And then she is diagnosed with a fatal brain tumor. Now, Davis received her fourth Best Actress Oscar nomination in five years for Dark Victory. And the film itself, which was directed by Edmund Golding, was nominated for three Oscars, including Best Picture. And that was a crowded field, Adam. The 1940 Best Picture candidates, Ninochka from Ernst Lubitsch, Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, William Wyler's Wuthering Heights, John Ford's Stagecoach, little movie called The Wizard of Oz, and another small picture, and the eventual winner, Gone with the Wind. The Best Actress Award went to Vivian Lee. So yes, a, a highbrow field there. Truly an honor to be nominated among that bunch with Dark Victory. Let's go to Nathaniel Myers, the professor who's been helping us set up each of our discussions in this marathon as he has done for others and see how Dark Victory landed for him. Hello, Adam and Josh. Following the thrilling ambiguities presented by the previous marathon film Jezebel, as well as your heady discussion of that film, I found 1939's Dark Victory to be a considerably more staid affair. That's not necessarily a value judgment, though the film does open itself up to some critique, I think. The way the wheels of the narrative, for instance, spin on a series of dramatic ironies where we, the audience, know more than the characters do, often results in some situations and some writing that, for me at least, tended to pluck at our heartstrings just a bit too forcefully. While I'm not quite as allergic to melodrama as some, 
Dark Victory does lay it on a bit thick. Still, if the film manages to convey moments of poignancy, it does so thanks in part to some of its performers, like Geraldine Fitzgerald as Judy's impossibly kindly friend Anne, and George Brent as her impossibly saintly doctor-turned-husband Frederick Steele. And it does so thanks in part to moments that I found, for whatever reason, to play a bit more honestly. The various bits of physical business between Judy and Dr. Steele as he's first diagnosing her. Or the confrontation with the inevitable between Judy and Humphrey Bogart's stablemaster. And Judy's request of Anne to read a letter of some importance. A letter that she can no longer read herself, and one that will initiate the final moves in Judy's endgame. If Dark Victory ultimately espouses the idea that we should live life such that we can meet death whenever it comes, beautifully and finally, the film itself exhibits these virtues most in moments like these. So, film spotting. Not surprisingly, given the nature of the marathon, one of the things I've been most interested in is your tracking of Davis as an actress. If A Human Bondage was a kind of quote-unquote starter performance, and Jezebel perhaps the perfect vehicle for her particular talent, all determination, no apologies, what do you make of her performance in Dark Victory, where she exudes her trademark vim and vigor, but in a role that, with some small exception about two-thirds of the way into the movie, is unreservedly sympathetic? And how much of her performance for you factored into the emotional heft of the film more generally. Thanks, guys. Well, it's funny. For a movie that is determined to try to make us weep, I found myself not getting very emotional at Dark Victory. And it certainly had nothing to do with Betty Davis or her performance, which I do think is the best part of the film. I think I'm with Nathaniel. He mentioned maybe laying it on a bit thick. And I definitely was aware of that throughout the film, including, I don't think Nathaniel mentioned this in his voicemail, that horse metaphor (laughs) that recurs throughout the movie. For me, Josh, the real question, and it's just a variation in some ways on what Nathaniel's asking us, is why would this be the performance Betty Davis considered her best? Or why would this be the role? Because apparently that's true. At least if you look in a few different places online, she is on record as saying this was her favorite. And through this marathon so far, we've seen her go from purely malevolent in a human bondage and miserable and dead to mostly malevolent, but ultimately redeemed and triumphant and probably dead to now a little entitled, but ultimately really sympathetic and of course dead. She still has that sneer, though. She still has that command of whatever room she walks into. And when she delivers a line like, I've never taken orders from anyone. As long as I live, I'll never take orders from anyone. I'm young and strong and nothing can touch me. You absolutely believe it's true when Betty Davis says it, right? She's phenomenal in this role, as you would expect. And she looks incredible, too. I'll say the way Golding shoots her and the way Ori Kelly again dresses her, that is something that really stood out to me. And maybe it's what stood out to Betty Davis as well. But maybe it's just that Judith seemed closer to a real woman than either Mildred or Mm -hmm. Julie do, which really seem like characters to me in a work of fiction. Do you have a theory on this, Josh, or is it curious to you as well? 
No, I, I like that idea uh, that it, it is more grounded in character than the other parts we've seen that we've discussed. Uh, why else might you want this role? You know, I wondered at one point if we were going to ever see a movie that was wholly on her character's side. And I think she does get that here. Yeah. Um, that's not to make her, you know, not to give her nuanced qualities and things that a viewer might quibble with or or maybe even question. But I do think the movie's on her side the whole time. And I think, you know, Nathaniel is right that this is certainly a higher register of melodrama. But that might also be Davis's register. I, I wonder if, you know, melodramas, uh, is, it, that's a genre that I've come to appreciate the more of them I've seen. I, do, I don't think I'm personally wired to respond to them on my own, but I've begun to appreciate them. And I think what has helped me in this case might actually be Davis's performance. And it might also be because it's matching well with what she does best. I think... It's very similar to Jezebel in the sense that the movie gives her two modes. It, it depicts her character in two modes, right? And and both Davis is very good at both. But in one, she's held back just a little bit in one mode. And we see that at the beginning of Jezebel. And uh, we see that also here. And then at some point in both films, she gets unleashed. We, t- we talked about when Press shows up at the plantation in Jezebel and she realizes that he has gotten married um, and she's going to have to come up with a new plan. Um, and here she is similarly unleashed when she uncovers this ruse, this really terrible ruse. You, terrible. It's, it's, you know, reminds us. It's interesting, though. We say that. But I think know. about how and, and obviously there are cultural differences at play here. But think about where the, you're going. Lulu, yeah. the Lulu Wong film from last year, The Farewell, where they choose to deceive their grandmother about her health situation. And again. Different culture um, being in China. And so there is that to take in mind. But mostly people saw that film as something that was it was a generous choice. And, you know, there were others who thought it was questionable. But here it's really comes across as a bad move on the part of her. Just the fact that her best friend is involved, you know, and this doctor who she has come to trust. Well, when she discovers that, that's when we get what I've come to think of as the full Davis, you know, Mm -hmm. she, that's where that line I referenced at the top prognosis negative that she pulls out. I mean, she delivers this at, at lunch. Well, I, I think I have a large order of prognosis negative. And it's her eyes. She just, she lets those eyes loose and it is thrilling. And I think when you have seen a couple of performances now, you're, I'm at least kind of, Hoping for that moment, even though it's probably going to be the most melodramatic moment in the picture. For some reason, uh, Davis, I think, is wired for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sam actually slacked me today and said that, weirdly, Davis reminded him of Prince and Purple Rain. And you know what? He's not wrong. He he described <laughs> well, it as got, just this— I got to hear more about this. Well, he described it as just this life force that the screen can barely contain. And I think that's true of Davis, for sure, in this movie. But I think it really is specifically those eyes as yeah. well, like in the Prince, scene you just talked about. Prince on stage, I guess he's talking about, which exactly. I can see then. Yeah, yeah Prince right. on okay. stage, for sure. So for me, though, that does tie into what— I think is special about this performance. And I think Nathaniel mentioned some of the physical bits and sensual might be the right word, but I'm actually just going more for tactile and more grounded. And the way we see her early on, Josh, when she is first meeting with Dr. Steele, who's played by George Brent, we're seeing him again after his turn 
in Jezebel. I think he's very good in both performances. And they're talking, and he's very close to her. But as she's getting a little more nervous and a little more wound up about her situation— and you see some of that fear creep in. She's touching this like leather chair and you just watch her digging her claws into mm-hmm. it. It, it. It's like at the time, it's as if she she just has so much energy that she has to channel it into something. And in hmm. this particular moment, all she can do is channel it into the chair. She's also she's touching her dress a certain way later in the hospital room pre-surgery same nervousness and fear and she gets the hospital gown that she's wearing and then the one she brings that the doctor puts around her and the way she just very subtly keeps pulling at that dress long after they've stopped talking about the dress itself or the gown itself she's still pulling at it in a way and again i feel like it reflects this type of almost manic energy this life force that's flowing through her that she has to direct somewhere but it does also betray her nervousness not just at what's about to happen to her but also her feelings for him i think it betrays that really strong romantic inclination she feels towards him but he has a line at one point where he's describing judy to someone and says she's just so entitled to live and that's really what you see in davis's performance yeah, I think the discomfort you're talking about is is partly emotional with how she's beginning to feel about him, the doctor. But but I think it's also because in those scenes, she's out of her element, right? This has taken her uh, yeah. out of a part. It's not a party she's hosting. And even the romantic angle, this is not usually how she plays those angles, you know, being the one who's in need of assistance. That's almost seems to be the sticking point for her is that she's not in control of this dynamic. And it's the, the time of history too, where where a male doctor would be put in the dominant position. And Judith has arranged her life where she is otherwise always in the dominant position, mm-hmm. even over the men involved, right? Who she invites yep. to the parties, who she employs, um, the authority she gives her male employees. We see all of this is in her control. And then when she gets in this health situation, she loses some of that control. And yeah, as you write, nicely point out, she expresses that Physically, absolutely. I, I don't. Brent didn't quite um, capture me here as much as he did as you know that that southern charm he had in Jezebel. Yeah, he's more of a swashbuckler. Yeah, definitely. And and here he was he was kind of you know a, a little stiffer. Not to say he was bad, but I did find him to be a little stiff. Bogart, who we mentioned at the top of the show, you know, I think really does kind of holds his own, you could say, or even gives pushback to Davis as an actor in a way that creates some real friction and tension. And it's not like this is one of his first couple of roles. He had done a number of movies, but he wasn't quite yet Bogart, right? So it's interesting to see the flickers of that and how you can see that it is going to come to full force where the entire movie, where he's paired up with with someone you know, like Catherine Hepburn, where the entire movie is going to be about that pushback back and forth and dynamic that Bogart and a female lead could have. So it was, I I thought he was a small part in this, but I really enjoyed seeing him in this film. You know, you and I are kind of alike, Miss Judith. Are we? How? You've the spirit in you, the same as I have in me. It's the fighting that counts. You've got to have action in your life, the same as I've got to have action in mine. We only live once, Miss Judith. Just once. 
Yeah, I did too, though. There were parts where I felt like I was watching a Humphrey Bogart movie. It was a different type of film whenever he was on screen. And yeah, sometimes that element. Yeah, and sometimes he was using a completely different type of accent, depending on the scene, <laughs> right? His name's Michael O'Leary, and occasionally he fell into, it kind of seemed like an Irish accent. Yeah. Other times, he was, of course, bogey. Ronald Reagan also in this movie, and I yes. think maybe we see him four times in this film, and three of them, he's so hammered his character is supposedly so hammered he can barely walk. I found him pretty brutal to watch, frankly. Oh, really? Didn't like him at all. I, well, I don't know that we're supposed yeah. to like him. For one thing, he's kind of a hanger on. Well, you know, Judith invites him to no. her parties. I meant I found him boring, Josh. Yeah, I did not. And maybe it's just because it was Reagan, but there was something towering about him. I don't know how tall the guy was, but, you know, again, we're both kids of the 80s. So we remember an older Reagan and especially at the end of his presidency. To, so to see him, it just struck me as, you know, this this towering, boozy figure who is kind of threatening and and kind of sleazy. I think there's like a real sleaze to this guy as mm-hmm. well that that I did find interesting. Again, maybe it's just just because it was Reagan. Um, yeah. But Nathaniel mentioned, you know, and I think you touched on it too, how if we found this moving or not. And I do think this, for all the melodrama, which again, I don't personally connect with, I do think this does get to a place where it is moving. And for me, it's not even so much in that epilogue where she's gone to, is it Vermont or New Hampshire? I think it's I think it's Vermont. Yeah, it's Vermont. Okay. They're both on the wrong side of Boston, Josh, either way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's not so much there, though I think those scenes work. But for me, it's when she's still adjusting to the news that she does only have likely a few months to live. And uh, she can't quite go after this in the same fighting way she might other challenges. And I think this sinks in when she's with Reagan, actually, Reagan's character at a club and it's closing time. And they're having this kind of conversation, drunken conversation about time. And she notices that the song the orchestra is playing references that. The name of it is, Oh, Give Me Time for Tenderness. And they end and she demands, kind of this is where the fighting spirit comes out, right? She mm-hmm. she flashes $50, says, play that one more time. You can't go home yet. I want to hear it one more time. And so they take the money and they do. And she just grows, she joins them on stage and grows more morose And she starts drunkenly mumbling along to the song. And what struck me is that we're watching Betty Davis admit defeat here in a way that I don't know we've even seen in Of Human Bondage when when her character became deathly ill. This is a woman who is realizing, again, the power is not in her hands, something Mm -hmm. she is so used to having, something she thought she got back. By that initial surgery, when Dr. Steele told her it was a successful surgery, she thought she got that back. And now she's realizing it's gone for good. Um, That was probably the most moving, moving moment for me. I, I did genuinely feel for her there, just seeing Betty Davis admit defeat. Yeah. You mentioned the farewell, and I think it's more than just the cultural aspect to it. I think a lot of us probably saw that movie and felt just like the Aquafina character, that this was wrong and that she needed to know the truth. And as the movie went on, we were probably more forgiving. And the cultural part is valid. But for me, Josh, I don't know that we can say that's all that it is, because the key difference here, or at least maybe this is the negotiation I'm having with myself, is that she knows she's sick. It's not a case where they're just keeping her completely in the dark. She goes through with the surgery. She... understands that there is something fundamentally wrong with her. And then to go through all that and come out the other side and then 
they just play pretend. And he even says that at one point, Dr. Steele, he's talking to Anne. This is later when they've gone to Vermont and he's saying it like it's a good thing. And I suppose I just had a hard time personally wrapping my head around it that he says, we just pretend. So rather than actually coming to terms in some way with their mortality, which is the lesson the movie is trying to impart, it's what he's always saying. Their answer to that is really just to be in denial of it the whole time. And yeah, I, I've I've clung to things in melodramas that are probably way more absurd than that. But there was a part of me that never completely got over both he and her lying to her in that way and not just coming clean about the reality of her situation, especially after the irony, Josh, of she's the one early on who says, let's just pretend it. It's not happening. I'm just going to go on with my life. I'm going to keep smoking. I'm going to keep drinking. I'm going to keep playing cards and riding horses. And I don't need to know any of this. Don't tell me what's wrong with me. And he's the one who says, you have to face it. You have to face it. Right. And, then, and then they switch places. That's the irony. Yeah. And changes his mind. So for, so for you, it, it's an issue because I, I think the movie believes they're making the wrong decision. But for you, it's almost more about plot contrivance that yes. those people would have made that decision. Yes. Okay. Okay. I can see. Yeah, I can see what you mean uh, by that. You Now, we've mentioned Golding a couple of times as director. He he also directed Grand Hotel and three other films with Davis. He did, interestingly enough, I saw um, a later version of, of Human Bondage. So just um, curious to see how these things connect. And then he also co-wrote the song that I mentioned, Oh, Give Me Time for Tenderness, Golding wrote the music for that. So a name, you know, before this marathon, I don't think I was probably familiar with at all, but definitely had his hands on some other instrumental films mm. from the era as well. So that wraps up the third film in our Davis Marathon. I think in a couple of weeks, we'll close out the marathon with 1942's Now Voyager, You Can See, Dark Victory, On Demand on most platforms and all the information you need about this marathon and past ones is available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, that is our show. We are wrapped up for another week. Really good to do the show again, even under somewhat strange circumstances. Thank you all for continuing to listen. If you want some community, find it on social media where Adam and I are both on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be there. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And over at Filmspotting.net in our show archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Filmspotting poll there. We're asking, what is your favorite kind of movie-going experience? To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, A White White Day. This was Iceland's official Oscar submission, making its North American theatrical premiere via the Gene Siskel Film Center's virtual cinema. Also, The Booksellers Out, a documentary about New York's book world, also available this weekend through the Gene Siskel virtual cinema. We will link to those in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Next week, we will have the third entry in our Christopher Nolan Oeuvre review. We'll talk about 2002's Insomnia and... We'll review something from 2020. We'll see. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. 
This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.